Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Arbitration agreements are the focus of several cases before the Supreme Court this term, and rulings on these agreements could impact millions of workers across a number of industries. A little later in the show, senior employment reporter Vin Guerrieri will join us to explain what we need to know about the two big arbitration cases that the High Court will decide this term. And later on, we'll end the show talking about the stench coming off of a lawsuit lobbed at Jay-Z. I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello, and hi, guys. Bill is doing that because Alex is not with us today. He's on vacation. He's you know, off I'm, in sunny California. I'm starting to question the man's commitment to the program. Um, That's a fair question. It's the second second show in, uh, in in four that he's missed? He's living a better life than you and I, Bill. I, That's he and his happening. wife have been posting... Instagram stories and stuff, and it looks they looks lovely. Look like they're having a really good time. It's very rainy here in New York City today. It they is. look like they're out having fun. You know, no jealousy. Not worried about it. It's fine. Don't. No, it's just fine. Before we get to the show, I think we have to circle back to a story from many moons ago. Oh, which one? Uh, the story of the fire festival. Oh, I love that story. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so the the well, wait. If people don't remember, Fire Festival was the one that was a big music festival in what's Car- the Bahamas. Yeah, okay. Uh, that was organized by Jay or by Ja Rule, and yep. we're going to talk about Jay Z later in the show. That's why I've got it on the mind. Uh, but <laughs> organized by Ja Rule and this guy uh, Billy McFarland, right? A uh, a man in his twenties who you know seemed very confident in his ability to. Uh, yeah, uh, misplaced confidence. Fire Festival went very poorly. It went um, terribly, and uh, McFarlane was later brought up on fraud charges. Sure. And uh, today, he was sentenced to six years in prison. Man, all over a music festival. That's crazy. It was, but I mean, ugh, I don't know. You, ever, you should go read the coverage of it, and like, th- just the, you forget about the story a year later. How absolutely ridiculous it was that they made they made really just no plans whatsoever yes and to the point that people were paying thousands of dollars expecting luxury accommodations and were given like tents and a cheese sandwich that then caused this like backlash all across social media it was sort of wild to watch it unfold in real time when it all happened right the more interesting question to me at least is what happened like that that you know that there, there were no seemingly repercussions for the all the social media influencers who pushed this thing. Right. Um, so it's it's an interesting question. Uh, and but but Mr. McFarland is is headed to prison. Wow. Um, <laughs> let's do another update on a case that we've talked about on the yeah. show. Yeah. We have a weird update to a story that we told you about a few weeks back um, about a huge class action over retirement savings that was filed against uh, New York University. Um, as we mentioned at the time, uh, this $350 million case was was thrown out by a federal judge. But uh, last week, the plaintiffs filed a... Um, uh, a pretty a pretty bold motion with the court saying that the judge should have recused herself um, before the ruling and um, because because as she was getting ready to decide the case, she was in talks to return to private practice at a big law firm that was headed up by a guy who's really closely linked to NYU to the defendant in the case. That's like a Matlock style. Twist yeah, 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 there. yeah, yeah. Um, so let's rewind just a step though and explain again sort of the basics of what this case was all about. Yeah. So back in 
2016, NYU was hit with a class action um, from a group of its employees who claimed that the school had violated a federal statute called the uh, Employee Retirement Income Security Act, or ERISA, um, by mismanaging their retirement funds. It's basically the the federal law that dictates the way that um, companies have to deal with your 401k. This isn't, right. this isn't a 401k. It's a little bit different because it's academic versus the the you know the private market. But basically, that's that's the deal. Um, Bunch of other schools have been hit with similar cases like this, but this case against NYU, um, it was the very first one to go to trial. Didn't go well for the plaintiffs. In late July, after a trial, um, U.S. District Judge Catherine B. Forrest tossed the case, um, saying that you know that there were quote deficiencies end quote in the way that NYU did things, but that the case simply hadn't risen to the level of a violation of of the law. Okay, I mean, I remember us talking about this. It's all kind of coming back to me. This was the weird one where. Um, it was sort of like, oh, well, they weren't great at managing these funds, yeah. but it wasn't enough to actually be actionable right. under the law. Right. Sounds like we're done here. What's what's the new bit? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's the whole that's the whole update. We're not going <laughs> to. So, um, OK, so let's rewind a little bit. Shortly before she ruled on the case in mid-July, the judge, Forrest, announced that she would retire from the bench. She had only been on the bench for seven years. It was sort of an abrupt um abrupt thing. But um, in in September, a little over a month after the ruling, she then returned to private practice at um, at the big law firm of Cravath, Swain and Moore. Um, you know, very elite, very prestigious big law sure. firm. Um, she had spent the first 20 years of her legal career before she was put on the bench um, at Cravath. And um, and she would be returning there. So why did the NYU plaintiffs take such umbrage with that? Yeah, news? I mean, from because from the outside it seems. You know. Well, yeah, because like judges, uh, they don't always come off the bench and go back to big law, but it happens from time to time. Sure. It's usually not a splashy thing. Well, it seems like they either die on the bench or right. they retire somewhat early and go back to private sure. practice. But um, y- right. So from the outside, it seems it seems fine. But the the plaintiffs who are suing NYU. Um, have a very different idea of what what happened. So, according to the plaintiffs, um, the the big issue here is that Cravath's chairman, a guy named Evan Chesler, um, is a member of NYU's board of trustees. That makes him directly responsible for the actions at issue in the case, according to the plaintiffs. And you know, a ruling against the school would have been a big blow to him. He he is on these all these committees dealing with the way that that these these funds were were dealt with. He he manages the endowment at right. um at NYU and this would be a, a big sort of material negative thing for that. So um so he's directly involved according to the plaintiffs. And they're also, I think you said earlier, saying that the judge herself was in talks to come back to the firm while the case was ongoing. Right. And that's sort of the the whole center of the controversy here. They say that because she was already in talks to return to the firm before she ruled and because the firm where she was planning and hoping to go was so directly tied to the case that it creates this this appearance of impartiality on, right. on her part. I'll read the quote um, from the filing rather than characterizing it anymore. Quote, before deciding whether NYU must pay millions of dollars for breaching its fiduciary duties as to matters for which Cravath's chairman had direct responsibility, she was clearly considering and, in fact, hoping, if not planning, for employment at the Cravath firm. Um, so they say that she should have recused herself and that there needs to be a new trial. And they filed it this week with the new judge who's now overseeing the case. So how did they know she was planning to go back 
while the trial, before the ruling was issued. Like, yeah. How, how are they sure it wasn't just something that happened after the ruling? Right. Because the ruling didn't, you know, she didn't join Cravath till about a month after the ruling. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for one thing, it's common sense. It's that, that you know, that you wouldn't, you it, it wouldn't be a two-week process to, sure. for that seems a, a, a former federal judge to go join a part as a partner at a at a firm like Cravath. Um, and then there's statements that Forrest made to the press. Um, the the filing this week from the plaintiffs quotes from from our story and from a Wall Street Journal story statements like that that you know Cravath was the only firm she had considered joining and that it really wasn't close and mm. and all this other stuff. It, the other thing is that Chesler was her mentor when she was at Cravath before and she's an NYU grad and he's an NYU grad and it's it's this so th- there's lots of little connective pieces here. Even with those connective pieces, I mean, this is a pretty bold accusation to hurl at a a former federal judge, um, someone that's now a respected partner at a big prestigious firm. Well, and to hurl at Chesler too. I mean, it's it's arguably making it's you know it's it's accusing both, both of, of them. them, right? So, um, yeah, are they just boldly saying like, "Yep, they were in cahoots, and that's what happened, and this is a real problem"? No. And that's the key. I, I think that's a really important thing to state here that um, they're they're sort of hedging. You know, they're 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 <laughs> they're sort of doing the Fox News. We're just asking questions kind of thing. <laughs> um, they're there's they sort of hedge in the filing. They say um, again, I'll read the quote. Plaintiffs wish to make clear that they are not accusing Cravath of impropriety and respect Mr. Chesler's generous commitment of time and resources to a charitable cause. Further, there's no need for this court to conclude that former Judge Forrest was, in fact, partial or biased. So that raises the question of what are they actually raising this for? The key here is the standard for recusal of a judge is not that you have proof that they acted out of bias. It's, quote, whether an objective, reasonable person informed of the facts would conclude that the trial judge's impartiality could reasonably be questioned. So, so it's that appearance of impropriety thing. It's the same thing with any time we talk about conflicts of interest or or questions of bias or anything like that, that the real issue is, n- is not always whether or not you can prove it. It's whether or not it creates this appearance that right. reduces the legitimacy of something that's supposed to be impartial. So, um, it, But like you said, it is a fire thing to put into a into a court filing about a former Definitely. federal judge and the managing partner of Cravath. So we will see uh, what the response filing is. I have to think they asked for a request for more time to file a response. So um, we will see in the coming weeks what they say, but I can't imagine they're going to be thrilled about it. So, Bill, I still want to stay in the realm of NYU. Yes. We've got some, another lawsuit We're doing a whole NYU show. Yeah. So this one... Um, in an era of Me Too and an era where um, diversity is something that we care about a lot in the law, yeah, we've got a suit, a pair of suits going the opposite direction. Okay. Um, so there's two suits, one filed against Harvard Law and the other one against NYU Law yeah. for allegedly discriminating against white men when selecting members to be on law reviews and which articles get published in those prestigious law reviews. Speaking as a white man, you know, I'm discriminated against all the time. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with no. Let's <laughs> just, no, right off the bat. Okay, so I, I'll i pull back that incredulous tone a little bit. Um, 
Uh, tell me a little bit more about these. Sure. What, what is actually being claimed here other than that sort of top line? So they were filed, both suits were filed by the same um, group. They're called Faculty, Alumni, and Students Opposed to Racial Preferences. Rolls right off the tongue. Sure does. Um, they say that white men are shut out of these prestigious publications because of the way the schools have a preference for racial, gender, and sexual orientation-based diversity. Uh-huh. So they point to some specific things about how these law reviews work. NYU selects 38 of its law review members just purely by merit, and the last 12 slots are reserved for selections made by a special diversity committee. Yeah. And at Harvard, this group claims that 30 members of the law review are selected based on merit, and another 18 are picked through what they refer to as a holistic but anonymous review that takes into account all available information. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, that's a little vague, right? So that's part of their complaint here. They're saying yeah. that Harvard's system and their website is very cagey on how this holistic evaluation is conducted, Yep. but that the website does specifically point out for Harvard's Law Review that it remains, quote, strongly committed to a diverse and inclusive membership. So according to this lawsuit brought by these white men, that's evidence that the Law Review gives preference to women, minorities, LBGTQ individuals. So just to distill this a little bit, it, I mean, they, this feels like an anti-affirmative action lawsuit. It does. Yeah. It right. is that. Right. Um, and it feels very much many things, as we've seen in, in recent news, get backlash. So sure. we've seen backlash against things like Me Too. This sort of feels a bit of a, a piece to that. Yeah. I mean, you saw it with, with all the Kavanaugh stuff that as Definitely. we got into week two and week three, there were there were ads about how this could happen to your husband. This could happen to your son. There sure. Are, and then the there... president came out and said, you know, it's a sad and scary time for young men in America. Right. So this has got a, a little bit, I don't want to draw the, the line too closely sure. between the two things, but it does sort of speak to when you push for diversity, there is going to be a reaction on the other end as well. These lawsuits feel of a time. They and do. And that time is right this moment. Yeah. So they point out in the complaint things about how at NYU, for example, um, the school asks authors of potential law review articles mm-hmm. to identify their race or sexual orientation, their gender identity when they submit those manuscripts. And the school would purport that that's to have um, an eye toward greater diversity from underrepresented backgrounds in the legal profession. Right. But that's literally the exact same thing that this suit is saying is wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So what have the schools said since these cases were filed? So after the filing, Harvard um, didn't give a comment to Law 360, but NYU told our reporters that the school plans to strongly defend their law review and the systems they have in place. Mm -hmm. And they said they have confidence in the outcome of this case. So they didn't seem tremendously worried about it. But it is interesting that they've both been filed. Yeah. I mean, and and if I'm not mistaken, there are other cases like this, at least I remember with Harvard, right? That yeah. there's other cases that are sort of targeting these um, these diversity initiatives. Yeah, we've, we've seen a little burgeoning of these in, in recent months. Um, Harvard has two separate discrimination suits playing out in the courts right now. Mm-hmm. Next week in Boston, a trial kicks off where an anti-affirmative action group is accusing Harvard of unfairly discriminating against Asian American applicants in its admissions process. Yeah. And then there's another case on appeal to the First Circuit that accuses Harvard of treating female professors differently than their male colleagues. And and that's part of um, the, the allegations there are related to the very closely held tenure process that they have. So I think these suits are just good to have on your radar because I, there is a bit of a groundswell right now sure. that's backlash against these things. So we'll see if they get any traction.
just a few months after a landmark ruling on the use of arbitration agreements against employees. The Supreme Court's tackling two more major cases on how those contracts are used on workers. Arbitration agreements have big impacts on millions of workers in billion-dollar industries, making it one of the most closely watched issues before the court in recent years. Here to discuss is Vin Guerreri, our senior employment reporter at Law360. Welcome back to the show, Vin. Thanks, guys. How many, you doing? many, many, many time guest Vin Guerreri. Well, Multiple times. We always rely on Vin to break down things like arbitration agreements that are hard to understand yep. into a way we can all sort of get it and see why they're important. And the good news is Alex isn't here, so there will be no pointed comments about your uh, Brooklyn heritage. I am honored to be sitting in the man's <laughs> chair right now. <laughs> well, Vin, let's get right into sort of the nitty gritty of all of this. Um, but. I want you to set the stage for everybody because I hear arbitration agreements as a Law 360 employee and think, oh, these are really interesting. But I think I might be alone there. So tell everybody what they are, sort of how they work, and why they're so contentious. I think you are alone there. They are interesting. <laughs> um, so arbitration agreements are clauses in contracts that allow whoever the signatories are to, instead of taking any disputes into federal court, into state court, mm -hmm. they can resolve them privately. Right. And companies really like these things. They love them um, for a lot of very simple enough reasons to understand. Yeah. They're cheaper than going through litigation. Businesses consider them to be more favorable just because of the form, the way that they're structured, the way that they're set up. Mm -hmm. They see them as being somewhat advantageous if they're trying to defend against claims. Some plaintiff's lawyers might say that that's not the case, but that's the perception of them. Now, we see them come up all the time in consumer agreements and end-user license agreements all over the place. But what we're talking about today is the use of them in the employee-employer relationship. And we're going to get to a couple big cases that are coming before the court this term, but let's rewind for a second and talk about last term, where we had that, the I think it was called Epic Systems, right? Epic Systems, yeah. So remind us and remind the listeners what Epic Systems was all about. So that was a huge case. That was a main event type case. Um, Epic Systems basically opened the door for all businesses to require their employees to sign arbitration agreements that had... Uh, what are called class action waivers, mm -hmm. which uh, simply basically the employee is signing away their right to file a class action if a dispute against their employer comes right. up. And that's a big game changer. Uh, you'd think that would be the Supreme Court would have gotten enough of, of arbitration agreements out of that. But we're going to be back again this term. They um, never get enough of arbitration. <laughs> yeah. So with Epic Systems, it sounds like the Roberts Court is very favorable about these agreements. Um, what statute are they interpreting to make that determination, and are they as favorable as it sounds? Very much so. Um, so over the past decade, they've taken numerous cases that deal with the Federal Arbitration Act, which is kind of the, the structure where a lot of these arbitration agreements are uh, what they're based on. Right. And the Roberts Court has been very firm in its stance that arbitration agreements are enforceable, and they're generally in most cases valid under the FAA. So we have a couple of new FAA cases before the court this term and they you know they might not be as big as epic but they they seem like they're, they're... You mean as epic as epic? Nice. Sure. That was well good. Done. <laughs> um but that that uh, you know that, that they pose more tricky questions about the way that these these things will will work. Um the first on the first one that we want to talk about is Lamps Plus versus Varela. Um Give us the give us the gist of of what the case is about and what the what the legal issue is. Yeah, these cases are a lot more nuanced than Epic was. Mm -hmm. Epic was very broad. Are class waivers legal or are they not? Um, Lamps Plus is a lot more in the weeds. So the general idea behind that case is 
arbitration agreements that are enforceable, no question about the arbitration agreement itself. It's just how far does the language in an arbitration agreement need to go for class arbitration to be allowed? Right. But it gets to the same idea of whether or not you can vindicate your rights as a as a class versus having to go it alone, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like we've gone from the big issue, can you waive this, this class structure? And now we're getting really narrow. So could we get some clear guidance from the court on that out of this one? Is that what we're expecting? We could. So basically what this case comes down to is an interpretation of one of the previous Supreme Court cases that we were kind of referencing a little bit earlier. So there was a 2010 case called Stolt-Nielsen. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind that one was that a party can't be forced into a class arbitration if it doesn't specifically say in the arbitration agreement that the parties agreed to that. I believe that was in Alito ruling, and I think the language was something like there has to be a contractual basis okay. within the arbitration agreement itself for the parties to arbitrate it on a class-wide basis. Right. Okay, so that sets up the first one. There's also a second one we wanted to sort of give a top line about uh, as we're talking about this. It's called New Prime versus Oliveria. It's a bit of a tricky one. Can you try to give us the elevator pitch for that case? <laughs> yeah, in case you wanted one that was a little more nuanced than class <laughs> We're going to get into exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> so this one deals with a section of the FAA that deals only with transportation workers. Mm-hmm. And the FAA exempts transportation workers if they have what are called contracts of employment. Right. So if you have a contract of employment, then you're not subject to the FAA, you're not subject to arbitration. So the court is going to have to go and interpret what contracts of employment means and determine if it covers independent contractors. And that's a big question here because there are a lot there are, I mean there are a lot of people working in these industries. In well the interesting thing about that case is really technically it only pertains to transportation workers. Uh-huh. But misclassification, whether someone is an employee or an independent contractor, that's an issue that comes up in a lot of wage and hour type cases. Right. So speculating a little bit, there could be a little carryover depending on how broadly the Supreme Court defines contracts of employment. Yeah. So we've set up here sort of these we had this broad ruling last term. We've got ones that are going to really drill down on specific issues this term. Can we talk about some of the big impacts that might come out of this? Because um, Epic really was clear to understand. We're really drilling down here. Can you tell us more about what to expect? So that's an interesting question, right? Because on their face, it doesn't look like these cases potentially have that big of an impact. Lamps Plus, for example, there might not be that many contracts that have vague language in them where it's not clear whether class arbitration is allowed or not. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, In New Prime, it's really only transportation workers that are at issue in the case. So there's not really that many transportation workers compared to the larger group of employees and that have these arbitration arbitration agreements generally. So just based on the issues involved and the parties involved, they may not have that big of an impact, but they do provide the court with another opportunity to interpret the FAA. And when the court interprets the FAA, uh, what we've seen in other cases is that, you know, there are citations down the line in 
future arbitration disputes right. and whatnot. So I think it's still a little bit unclear what the impact might be. You can't just say that, you know, the court might rule one way or another way and it's going to have a big impact for whoever wins and whoever loses. This might be one of those things where the impact is felt, you know, 10, 15 years down the line and whatever follow-up cases come up. And it certainly continues the narrative that we were talking about that, that you know, if we're looking at this as this this big picture idea of, of the employer wants to use these things and the employee wants to find ways to get out of them. You know, this the, these rulings, even if they are sort of picking at the edges of the big issue, they are continuing that continuing that narrative. Generally, you would think that they're yeah. going to be moving the court a little bit more towards the position that it's had for a while that in favor of arbitration. But, you know, you never know. They might issue a ruling, especially in new prime, based on what the oral arguments in that case looked like could be one of the few instances where the court actually rules in favor of the party who is trying to keep the case in federal court as opposed to the party that's trying to get it arbitrated. Very interesting. Yeah, I definitely think this is one everybody should be following, even though it seems a little thorny, because it's not very often that we get this recurring type issue back at the Supreme Court multiple terms in a row. Thanks for explaining it to us, Ben. No problem. Thanks for having me. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and we've missed a few weeks of that, so we've got a mm-hmm. really good one to talk about today. Bill, tell us all about it. It's a time-honored uh, offbeat segment, the the bench slap. Yeah, I love those. Judge being just, just mean to somebody. <laughs> so what happened here? Uh, so last week, the Second Circuit was hearing oral arguments in this case filed by an artist, a guy named Dwayne Walker, um, who's been unsuccessfully suing Jay-Z uh, for like six years now um, over the logo for Rockefeller Records. Ah. Um, the guy claims that he played a role in designing it way back in 1995 and that he's owed millions in royalties. Um, judges have disagreed with that contention repeatedly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a quick way to get yourself toward a bench slap later. Yeah. Uh, and he's been sanctioned. and But so... Here we are. Here we were last week, um, and the case is still going. Uh, it's at the Second Circuit. The the this guy Walker is appealing the the dismissal of his case. Um, so our very own Jack Newsham was in the house for this, and um, it was sort of near the oral arguments. It was uh, Walker's attorney had reserved a few minutes at the end, as um, appellants do, and. Um, <laughs> One of the members of the three-judge panel just seemed like he had had uh, enough of of Walker's attorney. You know, Mr. Barry, the problem you have is that this case has a real stench to it. And uh, the advocacy that you brought to this case falls well short uh, of what we see and appreciate seeing in this circuit. Your Honor, the other... That's just my view. I understand. The other... uh, the other um, issue that the court, that the district court must take into account is the defendant's uh, conduct in the case. I hope this court will agree that the defendant's conduct in this case has been far below what this court and the district court would. No. Okay. <laughs> and that uh, statement you just made is further illustration of the point that I conveyed to you a moment ago. 
Okay. Um, <coughs> so, uh, well, uh, I, uh, it's the, the district court. Oh, Oof. okay. I want to melt into my seat and die. And I'm not even the attorney being like reprimanded. It's so tough. That's what's, so tough. What's good here is that like, you know, the stench line is kind of like the thunder road. You know, it's the hit. <laughs> it's, the, it's the radio hit. But honestly, him coming back in and just going, no, might be the best part of uh, to me, to me, the best part of the clip is hearing the, um, uh, uh, um, uh well, well, um, okay. <laughs> like, I mean, I just, do sort of, tough. I feel bad for this attorney that had to really have sucked. Um, but uh, I mean, this case, I've been following this case for a long time and it really does have a stench. Um, but so it didn't take very long, uh, for the second circuit to rule one week later today. The Second Circuit uh, issued a one-page ruling affirming the dismissal of the case. So That's um, exactly what I would have expected after hearing that clip. Right. And, you know, we we talk about on the show, you hear, like, top-notch appellate and Supreme Court attorneys saying, don't read too much into the way that oral arguments go, that sometimes judges or the Supreme Court justices, they've got their side that they're leaning toward, and they're tougher on that side because they want you to sort of fix all the flaws that, sure. that might be in your argument. Especially and if you're arguing for the, for the Supreme Court or uh, a panel or an en banc uh, group right, or exactly. something like that. Where they're you're making trying policy. To convince their, right. They're also trying to convince their um, colleagues on the bench. Exactly. <laughs> Clearly the exception to that rule is a situation like this where a judge literally says to your face that your case stinks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, not great. I'm going to try. Not great, Bob. I'm going to try to keep out of um, your future performance review, Bill. I'll try not to say, hmm, it's got a real stench. Your last year has had a real stench to it. <laughs> and I try to lightly defend myself and you just go, no. 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 That'll wrap up today's show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. I'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Ben Greary, and our contributing reporters, Chris Villani, Emily Brill, Braden Campbell, and Jack Newsham. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. You can find us on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like us, please leave a review. It helps other people find the show. Thanks, and join us again next week.